Welcome to episode 12 of the Life in Bomb City podcast brought to you by the Social and Behavioral Sciences Department at Emerald College. I'm Aaron Favor. And I'm Dr. Beth Rodriguez. This podcast is produced in the Panhandle PBS and FM90 studios on the Washington Street campus, and it's available on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, podcast apps, and podcatchers. We have Frank Belizzi with us from our history department at Emerald College sitting in. Frank joined us previously on episode eight, Films, Family, and the Decade Before Us, if you want to hear about his academic background. But our guest this morning is Dr. Wade Schaefer of West Texas A&M University. Dr. Schaefer joined the WTAMU faculty in 1994 as assistant professor of history after earning his bachelor's degree and master's degree in history and uh, from the University of Texas at Arlington, we should say, and his PhD in history from none other than the College of William and Mary, where Thomas Jefferson also attended. In 2000, he was promoted to associate professor and in July of 2001 was appointed head of the Department of History, Political Science, and Criminal Justice back then, now the Department of History and Geography. In September of 2005, he was promoted to professor of history and in January of 2008 was named associate dean of the Sybil B. Harrington College of Fine Arts and Humanities. Dr. Schaefer was appointed to the position of Associate Provost in July of 2010 and to the position of Interim Provost and Vice President for Academic Affairs in March of 2012. He's now back to teaching full-time as a professor. Uh, Dr. Schaefer's research involves 19th century Southern newspapers and their role in shaping political affairs in the South and the nation. He's especially interested in the Richmond Enquirer, which was edited for 41 years by Thomas Ritchie. Dr. Schaefer recently published a historiographical essay on Jacksonian politics in a book entitled the age of Andrew Jackson. It's so great to have you with us, Dr. Schaefer. Thank you for the invitation. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, we're very much looking forward to having this conversation. Uh, age of populism, 2020 presidential election. Uh, I've got President Donald Trump, uh, a populist. And there's some comparisons to be drawn, uh, some say, between Andrew Jackson and uh, the presidency of Donald Trump. Uh, we were hoping that uh, you could illuminate that for us. Well, <clears throat> yes, I'll, I'll take a stab at it. We know that uh, Trump himself has said that he admires Andrew Jackson, and uh, although I'm not sure it's still there, he had a portrait of Jackson in the Oval Office for a long time. It may, it may still be there. And um, if you look at uh, who they are and how, how they came to be national figures, there's not a lot uh, in terms of um, they didn't have similar upbringings, right? Andrew Jackson was the son of immigrants, um, uh, Hard scrabble upbringing, never <clears throat> excuse me, never knew his father. His father died um, before he was born uh, at a very young age. He was orphaned, uh, very little education, and the the prototypical American pull yourself up by your bootstraps story, right? Goes from being an orphan, running with gangs when he's a teenager, to becoming the major general in the United States Army, a major player in politics in Tennessee, and ultimately the president of the United States. The first one who's an outsider, the first one who didn't you know, come from uh, a blue blood to become the president. Trump, on the other hand, of course, um, had wealth from his father, had the best education. Um, he uh, did not pursue a political route. He did not have the hardships that um, Andrew Jackson went through. Um, and he never really had a political career. Jackson, at least, had served as the governor in Florida. He had served in the United States Senate briefly, had some political background and experience. But when they decided to launch their presidential campaign, we can really start seeing some similarities between the two, uh, between the two men. Um, they, they both ran as outsiders, and I know we'll touch on that uh, more fully. Uh, they both had a very populist appeal, as you, as you referenced um, uh, earlier. 
uh, and they both talked about the same sorts of things that they were that they were outsiders. It was time to shake things up in the nation's capital. Um, that um, they were plain spoken, right? They appealed to people in very blunt, very plain language, not the sort of more sophisticated political dialogue that people were used to from presidential candidates. Um, and they both were able to secure people who had been out of the political process, either had never been politically motivated or interested, or who had dropped out just because they were no longer interested in the, the, the scope of the political debate. So they brought a lot of people into the political process um, by their populist uh, messages that they, that, that, that they had. Um, they, talked about, they both talked about the economic changes that were transforming America at their time and how the common man was being left out uh, that it seemed to be that uh, wealthy people, large uh, businesses, although, of course, they're very different then than they were uh, uh, now. Uh, but well, who was being squeezed out was the average person, right? Um, so, so they had that appeal. Very plain spoken, drew huge crowds of people, um, and they both really threatened the political establishment um, at the time. The other thing that uh, <clears throat> I would say that really sticks with me is both were given very little chance of being successful, right? We probably all recall that when Trump started running, people were like, oh, no, he's just too far out there. There's no way he won't have the national appeal. He'll fall out, and, you know, a more, quote, unquote, traditional candidate will, will be the nominee. Same thing was said about Jackson. When he announced um, presidency in 18, he was running for the presidency in 1822, people said, him, Andrew Jackson, he can't keep a job. You know, there's no way. Uh, he's too hot-headed. He's you know not refined enough. He's an outsider. He won't. He doesn't have a chance. And both of them very quickly, of course, disproved the wisdom of the crowd or the wisdom of the um, uh, the, the, the uh, experts uh, in terms of ru running. Jackson, of course, had that little hiccup where he won the popular vote in 1824, but was not named president. And the political process made sure that a more traditional person, John Quincy Adams, was put in his place. But when he ran in 1828, he want a convincing uh, uh, victory. Um, the other thing that's very clear is they talked about, Jackson talked about cleaning the uh, uh, Augean state. Well, I don't know if you know your um, Herculean tasks, but one of the tasks of Hercules was to clean the Augean stable. And it was like the myth, it was like Sisyphus pushing that rock, right? Um, you couldn't clean it because the horses produced so much manure that you were constantly, by the time you cleaned it, you had to go back again. So Jeff, uh, Jackson talked about he was going to go into D.C. and he was going to clean the Augean stables, right? He was going to get rid of all the filth, all the mess, all of the corruption that was in Washington, D.C. Well, what was one of Trump's rallying cries when he ran for the president? He's going to drain the swamp. He's going to go in and he's going to clean out all the corruption and clean, clean out all of the mess um, that's been piled up in D.C. So they both had that very populist appeal to, you know, it's messed up. I know it's messed up, but unlike everybody else who's fine with it being messed up, I'm going to, I'm going to take action. I'm going to go in and I'm going to actually do something um, uh, about it. So they ran similar campaign styles as similar as a campaign in the 1820s and the uh, 21st century can be in terms of their message and in terms of who they appealed to and in terms of being political outsiders who wasn't, weren't given much of a chance to be successful. It sounds like one of the things that they were doing is making sure that we had the in-group, out-group, and they were not part of the political in-group. Right. They were the like the everybody else, the people's people, and that really is very, um, it's powerful for people to feel like, oh, like you're running for some this big office and you are on our side. Right. You're not like them, you're like us, and I think that makes a lot of the population feel like, oh my gosh, you know, there's somebody who may really make a difference. 
No, I think that's exactly right. And it seems odd to say that Jackson, who was, by the time he ran for president, like I said, he, he was um, one of the most uh, well-known men in the country. He was a military hero. He was wealthy. Um, he had served in high-level, you know, government offices. Or someone like Donald Trump, also very well-known, right, because of his um, businesses and because of his uh, uh, media performances and appearances and everything like that, that they could be seen as outsiders. But from the narrow perspective of they were, they did not play by the rule book of the national political parties, which had everything scripted and you know, which everything was uh, well said in advance. You're right; they they were outsiders. They were breaking through that mold of um, everyone has to look like this and talk like this and have this position on these sorts of things, uh, and don't cross this line and don't cross that line. They really didn't care about any of those things. Yeah. What about the context of Andrew Jackson? So today when I teach history classes, when I uh, read um, the historiography of the 19th century, I encounter these expressions like the age of Jackson, Jacksonian democracy. Well, John Quincy Adams doesn't get a, a democracy named after him. We don't talk about the age of Martin Van Buren. So would you comment a little bit about the, the context of Andrew Jackson's rise and his fame that kind of makes all of that possible or the context in which he operates that makes him uh, the name of an age. Yeah. That's an excellent uh, point, and I tell my students, he's really uh, about the only individual now that we name a historical period after in American history. Um, and, and I think it's warranted, um, and for, for good reasons and for bad reasons. So um, he was a towering figure. It's really hard, I think, for us to understand um, how uh, pivotal Andrew Jackson was in reshaping politics in America. When we talk about Jacksonian democracy, I think it's been pretty well established that that occurred before he became president, right? So he, you can't really say that he was the um, initiator of that. Uh, the states had begun to change their constitutions in the 1820s, and they were moving towards universal male suffrage. And so a whole bunch of people who hadn't been able to participate in the political process before legally now could. Jackson was the first person to take advantage of that, the first person to make sure those people were being spoken to and were being heard from that. But he didn't make those laws. He didn't change those constitutions. He didn't expand the franchise, right? Um, <clears throat> so I don't think we can talk about Jacksonian democracy and give him credit. Um, but in terms of the age of Jackson, I, I argue in my classes and in my research, I've argued that Andrew Jackson rechanged the or Andrew Jackson changed the political landscape in America, and that really, if we want to get down to it, the two political parties that existed at that time, the Democratic Party and the Whig Party, should have been called the Jackson Party and the Anti-Jackson Party, because the only thing that bound the Democrats together at that time, North and South, was their support for Andrew Jackson, and the only thing that that allowed the Whigs to coalesce was their hatred of Andrew Jackson. And so it's rare in American history that you get one person who can realign the political stars around his personality. And that sounds exactly like what's going on right now, yeah. right? We have, I mean, even though we have the Democrats and the Republicans, it seems like we have people for Donald Trump and people against Donald Trump, and there's not really anything in the middle. So even though that's just another correlation of those two that seem very similar. Right. Yeah, actually, uh, that is one of the most uh, uh, salient comparisons between the two men is they were extremely polarizing figures. Um, you know, Andrew Jackson was the first president to have an assassination attempt on his life. There were actually two during his lifetime. 
Um, I found a letter in an archive when I was doing my research a million years ago in which a person had written a letter to the president saying, if you were here, I would reach in with my bare hand, pull your heart out so that I could, you know, so that's pretty intense, uh, <laughs> yes, <it> uh, <laughs> <pretty> intense stuff. <laughs> but on the other hand, the story I like to tell, and, and, and uh, Aaron may have heard this one uh, when I was visiting his uh, high school classes in years past was, Andrew Jackson died in 1845, um, 15 years later in the presidential election of 1860, fully knowing that Andrew Jackson was dead. He received several thousand votes to be the Democratic Party's nominee mm. for the presidency. And these people were not idiots. They knew that he wasn't going to rise from the grave. Andrew Jackson could do a lot of things, but he couldn't rise from the grave <laughs> to lead the nation. But when people asked him, well, you're throwing your vote away, they said, look, the only man I know who can fix the mess in right now is Andrew Jackson. And so I don't believe in Lincoln. I don't believe in Douglas. I don't mm. believe in anyone else. The person who can fix our mess is Andrew Jackson. And they were basically, it was a vote of protest, right? But that shows the kind of support there. And then closely tied to that, and, and maybe you can comment on this, was both men demanded complete and total loyalty to them, right? Um, uh, Andrew Jackson always said, there's two sides to every issue, my side and the wrong side, right? He got rid of cabinet members left and right because they uh, went against him or didn't agree totally with him. And we've seen that same thing sort mm -hmm. of in, in play with uh, Donald Trump, uh, is that loyalty, personal loyalty, they value very, very highly, much above party loyalty. It's personal loyalty. So that's, uh, yeah. <clears throat> that's actually very common uh, with presidents. I mean, if you're going to work so close to the center of power uh, with, with an individual that has so many decision-making uh, people involved, agents outside and inside the office that are coming in and out, and I mean, you have to have control over that information and controlling the information means that you have to have something above and beyond even uh, something like a non-disclosure agreement where uh, if something is said offhand even that might be not not too colorful about something then you have to have something else and that is personal loyalty and that's the one that's one of the things uh, so for example in the in the Trump administration after the impeachment he did let go some of the senior level uh, national security individuals uh, in the uh, in the military and the press says they got fired and of course in the military they didn't get fired they got reassigned by their commander-in-chief and so um, th that that seems to play uh, fairly fairly common on the other hand why are we why do we see this as being so different and can Andrew Jackson's presidency teach us anything with regard to the, the idea of personal loyalty to uh, an individual, was this common throughout his entire life uh, in his military career, for yeah. example? Absolutely, and that's a good point. Um, one of the one of the um, campaigns that, or one of the um, arguments that was used against him in his campaigns was something called the um, um, the coffin bill, and it was a broadside, a piece of paper that had coffins all along the outside edge. And on the, on the coffins were the names of his soldiers that he had ordered executed because they had deserted during the War of 1812 or during the, the time that he was down in uh, Spanish Florida in 1817, 18, 18, 18, 19. And his point again was, um, you don't desert your commanding officer. You don't walk away from the commitment that you made to protect your country. And so rather than saying to them, you know, uh, I'm, pushing back down to Buck Private or something, he lined them up, and with his men watching, he had them executed. And these were 
young farm kids who probably thought this is going to be fun. I'm going to go out and have some fun killing Indians or whatever. And then they turn, it turns out, you know, this is a miserable life that we have. I just want to go back to the farm now. Well, they didn't go back to the farm. They went back in coffins, you know, to their home. So he was really criticized for that, for being so um, stringent at, at that. But of course, you know, Washington did the same thing during the Revolutionary War. He actually had his own soldiers uh, execute other soldiers who had deserted because he wanted to send this message about loyalty and this message about you don't abandon or desert um, your post. So Jackson had that reputation well before he moved into the White House that he demanded strict loyalty t- uh, to him, um, and you were either for him or you were you know against him. And the most famous example of that is uh, his own vice president, Calhoun, when he goes against him in the nullification crisis. Um, Andrew Jackson says, I hope he's not in Washington, D.C., because if he is, I'm going to string him up from the highest apple tree I can find for treason, right, for for committing treason against the United States. Yeah, I mean, it does. It plays into, I mean, even the places where they worked before. So in the military, in business, it's a lot more common to just get rid of people if they're not on your same goal. And we kind of, we would agree with that. Like if you're, if you're working and your CEO and your CFO, and you're, if they're not in the same line, then you go somewhere else. Okay, so when we look at the presidency, all of a sudden we're like, oh, what? You're getting rid of people if they don't believe with you. But that's, I mean, that's the world they came from before. So it was just common practice. Yeah. So this isn't something new. This isn't something like only Trump does it or sure. only Andrew Jackson does it. But it's been done. Um, but because of their strictness, I guess, and their black and white, like it's either my way or the mm-hmm. highway kind mm-hmm. of thing, people really do latch onto that and say, wait a minute, this person is no good. Yeah, no, I think that's well said, and I think you could find lots of, of that. But you could also go back and counter that with looking at someone like Washington or someone like Lincoln, two of our very best presidents, who made a deliberate point of p- filling their um, cabinet and filling their administration with people who disagreed with them, right? Lincoln famously, the team of rivals, right? Let's put all these people who think they could be a better president than me, and let's see what we can do together. And I think that speaks to the plurality of America. That speaks to the diversity of this country, whether you're talking about diversity of thought or diversity of background or an experience or whatever it is. And so they chose a different path, right? Um, and uh, one of the geniuses of George Washington is he had that military career and he had that, um, that sense of devotion and loyalty, but he also could look past that. And so he could bring in not only Hamilton, who had been his aide-de-camp, but also Jefferson, who had already disagreed with him extensively on things, and say, you guys work it out amongst yourself. There's more, it's more yeasty when there is a difference of opinion than we're all right on the same page, on the same, you know, all the way along. You can get more done when everybody agrees, but um, you leave people behind, right? You leave different viewpoints, different perspectives, different uh, goals behind because you have that uh, sort of narrow focus there. But you're right. It's very common, and I think that's a good analogy, actually, between how competitive business is now. If you've got people going behind your back or people who don't believe in your product or believe in your brand, you can't make it in this world. And likewise, if you're in the military and the, the men and your command don't have faith in you or don't do everything you do exactly when you tell them to do it, you got problems. Mm-hmm. I, I, I've recently heard Jared Kushner uh, talk about the Israeli-Palestinian issue, and he said the Israeli business model. <laughs> he actually used the term business model to refer to their political model. I thought that was really interesting. Yeah. And so, yeah, but for people that are in the business world, uh, CEOs, anybody that's been a boss or anything like that, if you've got people that are no longer being able to be effective in what they're doing, you just make a change. And so in, in politics and in Washington, that is kind of seen as, 
well, did they get fired? No, no. they. I mean, well, it's comp. It's a little more complicated than that in the mind of someone who's a CEO because they're looking at things from are they effective anymore? Okay, for so for example, Steve Bannon. Steve Bannon's very very effective initially, and then he's not as effective anymore. As soon as he starts showing signs of not being as effective and he's on the decline, it's time to make a change. Who's going to be the replacement? Well, and I think it's important, too, to, to realize, particularly in this day and age, how draining those jobs are and how we're only human. I mean, you know, press secretaries come and go. Every president runs through a lot of press secretaries because what a miserable job. <laughs> you know, and you just get beat down every single day. At some point, you're like, you know what, I just want to go garden or I just want to go, you know, do something other than this. So, and that's that's true of everyone that that's served in that level. And it's such a demanding job where you're on 24 seven, where you have no time on your own, where you have no chance to work on your personal relationships or things that are important to you. I mean, it's a sacrifice really, you know, to do it. If you think about it, I mean, I'm sure it's very exciting and thrilling, but at some point, as you say, your effectiveness starts to wane or you find yourself out of favor for whatever reason. So I have a question for you. So do you think that, um, I know the media always talks about how the country is more divided than it's ever been. Is this, is this real or is this a media thing that really pushes where we have more argument and we have more disagreement or is it, are we really that divided? Uh, well, I think it's a little of both. Uh, I know that's uh, <laughs> not the answer you're looking for. Um, the, the answer, if I answer no, it's to say we're nowhere near where America was in the 1850s. And in the 1850s, Americans forgot that they were Americans, right? So it, it ended the decade with it making sense that hundreds of thousands of Americans would take up weapons against hundreds of thousands of other Americans and for four years slaughter them. 640,000 men killed in four years. We're nowhere near that, right? I used to tell my students, can you even imagine, can you conceive of another civil war in the United States where millions of Americans are, are killed, right? We disagree on a lot of things. Most of them are social issues that we disagree on, right? Uh, in the 1850s, Americans, North and South, forgot that they were Americans. All those things that bound them together, their language, their religion, their culture, disappeared. Their heroes disappeared, and all they could focus on was the one thing that was dividing them, right? So, um, so the answer, no, we're nowhere near where America was in the late 1850s and early 1860s, and let's hope that we never <laughs> uh, relive that particular um, time period. But the answer, yes, is that we now seem to have a political system that is an either-or. There is no continuum, right? Um, you're, you're placed in one of two buckets, and then you're expected to hop in line with those two th trains of thought. And in a pluralistic society like ours, I think that's dangerous to say that I have to be either A or B when I know there's 24 letters after that. Um, I have to be either zero or one when I know that there are millions of combinations. I think that, that is, that's where it becomes more polarizing, right? And, and that, it is troubling to me that we're taking away options from the American people um, and not allowing them to express the rich diversity of thought that really has made us who we are. Yeah. Dr. Schaefer, I want to I take you from the 21st century and kind of pull us back to the 19th century for just a second, thinking more about Andrew Jackson. When I, when I teach students about the presidency of Andrew Jackson and how he does change the character of the U.S. presidency, I talk about his use of the veto, uh, which seems to be unprecedented. He's much more uh, likely to veto any bill that uh, he can, that he doesn't like, 
Whereas somebody like George Washington was reluctant uh, to use uh, veto power and say, well, you know, who am I uh, to overturn the majority of the federal Congress, a decision that they've made? And Jackson's attitude was, who am I? I'm the president of the United States who's been elected by all of them, unlike all of these representatives, uh, seems to have been. And then this business of uh, changeover uh, from one administration to another, people losing their jobs as a result of a new, a new president of the United States. I, I would be interested to hear what else there might be about the ways in which Andrew Jackson, in your view, changes uh, the U.S. presidency forever in certain ways. Uh, and so if he doesn't, if he doesn't create uh, Jacksonian democracy, he certainly does uh, create the age of Jackson. And so part of this, a big part of this is about his political career. So how does he change the presidency? But then I also, the second part of my question would be, how does the presidency change him? How does his experience of, of, of serving in, in the executive role change Andrew Jackson? Good, good questions both. And uh, first one in particular is right on point. I mean, I, uh, it's stretching it to say that Jackson creates the imperial presidency, but he fundamentally transforms that office from one that was essentially, and I'm, I'm painting with too broad of a brush here, was essentially a reward to a senior um, uh, politician or a senior statesman uh, to cap off their career, right? If you think about the men who served before him with the exception of, of John Quincy Adams, and that was a weird uh, situation, um, they were a people in the twilight of their career who had a long and distinguished career, usually related to the revolution, and this was the this was the cherry on top. This was now go serve as president, right? And so the president did not have anywhere near the the range of authority that we are accustomed to him having today. Whether you're talking about Trump or Obama or, or whoever, um, until Andrew Jackson came along, he was the first person to stand up and say, "Look, I am the only person in the federal government that was elected by all, all the people." I'm the only one who can speak for all the people. No one in the Supreme Court, because they were not elected. No one in the Congress can speak for all the people, but I can. So I am the voice of the people. and That gives me the authority to um, veto legislation that uh, I believe is bad legislation. Prior to Andrew Jackson, um, the presidents would only veto a bill, even if they strongly disagree with it personally, if they believed it could be unconstitutional. And they believed that was their role in the scheme of the Constitution was that the president would serve as a check on a Congress that gets out of control and starts passing. They always make up some silly example in class like, you know, uh, blue-eyed uh, blue people have to pay more in taxes than brown-eyed people do. Okay, clearly that would be unconstitutional. So J Jackson said, no, I can veto a bill because I think it's a bad bill because I think it's bad for the country because I am speaking for all of the people. And so you're right. He vetoed more bills in his eight years, his two terms in office, than all six presidents combined before him did. I did not know that. Yeah. That's impressive. So he, he's the one that turned that veto into the thing that it is today. And state governors and presidents, of course, expect to have the right to veto something that they disagree with as opposed to something that they believe might be you know, unconstitutional. So that's one way he did it. Um, you're probably familiar with the stories about his inauguration, how he was almost crushed to death. People would uh, people would walk uh, a hundred walk a hundred miles to be at his inaugural address because he spoke to them. Right, he touched them in a way that no politician had. That was a bad choice of words, but um, <laughs> he reached out to them in a way that no politician had reached out to them before. So um, on the day of the inauguration, it was traditional for the president to invite the public into the White House, and he would treat them to food and drinks and things like that. 
Well, there were so many well-wishers that they pushed him into a corner, and he came close to suffocating to death. And a, 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 a sharp-eyed uh, assistant or servant smashed some of the windows at the White House and said, hey, there's beer out on the West Lawn. And the people just started going through the doors and the windows to get to the free beer and save the president's life. I mean, the first thing Jackson has to do is spend ten or $15,000 fixing the White House after the inauguration. They weren't prepared for that party. They as, were not. As <laughs> the security was not what it no, needed to be. No, um, but it was, again, it, it was, it was um, uh, empowering to Jackson that these people um, had this felt this personal connection, felt very comfortable coming up to the president of the United States, shaking his hands and saying, you're, you know, you're my guy. And it was terrifying to the political establishment because they had not seen that kind of um, devotion. They had not seen that kind of intense um, um, love of a politician before. And even, even Washington, uh, who was the great hero of the land, his was a very reserved you know, affair. And here you've got this mass coming in walking into the White House like they own the place um, and uh, all feeling it's my right to shake the hands of the next president of the United sure. States. And I, I'm sure that was empowering uh, and ingratiating to Andrew Jackson and his administration, but I'm sure you've read the newspapers. I haven't. I'm sure that that also provided uh, fodder for his critics and detractors mm-hmm. to say, the rabble has invaded the executive okay. mansion. You That's know, the, what a disgrace. Yeah. And uh, now, Daniel Webster in particular just basically shook his head and and said colloquially, oh, my God, what are we in for? Because there's exactly that, right? The path to despotism leads through pure democracy, he said. And this, this guy could unleash some really potent forces that we're not prepared to deal with um, right now. They, they, both men, and by the way, I'm, I'm, I haven't answered the second part of your question. I'll come back to it. But both men have also been seen almost as sort of demagogues. You, you call it populism, right? That's the dressed-up version of it. Um, the, the, the negative side of that, the flip side of that is – um, they appeal to the base instincts of people, and they are really about um, securing additional power for themselves and support for themselves so that they can go out and do what they want to do and then not have to worry about pushback or blowback, right? So um, uh, both men have been called uh, demagogues in a way that really we haven't had a lot of presidents um, who would be referred to in those terms. Yeah, I mean, it shows the social perception um, where one side we see – them as the speaking for the people and they're really taking that responsibility on because they were elected by us and they're going to do what we they said they were going to do and on the other side they're seen as narcissistic you think that you can speak for all these people and that your word is the best and that you should you know and so Mm -hmm. it really again it comes to that idea of again if you're in or if you're out if you're for if you're against and that does bring into the idea of the social perception theory as soon as we've decided this is what your social figure is and that we're going to that's how we see you and everything you do um and the halo effect. Is that, yeah. Have you guys heard of the halo effect before? Yeah. Explain what that is. Okay. The halo effect is the idea. As soon as you find one attribute, and it can be negative or positive, everything on that person is seen as either all good or all bad. So if somebody has, you know, is supporting either Andrew Jackson or um, Donald Trump, if they do one thing, we're like, oh, see, they're the greatest, and they, they go out of their way to do these things. But if we see one thing that's bad, every single action they do is also bad. Yeah. That would certainly be the case of uh, Andrew Jackson. Like I said, he was a very polarizing figure. Um, you ask about how the presidency changed him and 
one thing I would say is that it physically physically ruined him. Um, he was sickly. Um, uh, he uh, took to where he would rarely eat. I mean, maybe once every two or three days he would eat something. He only drank cold water. He had been a, um, a sort of stereotypical rebellious teenager, drank a lot of alcohol and everything like that. But when he got married, he took a, a what was called a cold water pledge. The only thing that will pass my lips from now on is cold water. Um, and so he, uh, his health was not good. He had two bullets in his body from duels. Um, the man fought in multiple duels. One of them was an inch from his heart. One of them was in his left arm. Actually worked its way out the back of his left arm when he was president of the United States. So he had a procedure before there was anesthesia to have it re- removed. Um, and he was physically wrecked from it. In fact, early in his first term, he said, I'm not even, he told his advisors, I'm not even going to survive this term in office. Um, very physically demanding uh, for him. He did not only survive that first term, was reelected, um, easily reelected, and then went on, uh, had six or seven years after that. Um, the other thing was it, it um, you know, for him personally, it, he considered it a sacrifice for him to do that, right? I mean, um, he did not materially benefit from his time there. He, he's got plantation back in Tennessee, um, that's being neglected. His um, wife, who died um, between the time he was elected and the time he took the oath of office, um, he's tending to her memory and dealing with that loss, which was a huge loss for him along the lines of Jefferson's loss of his wife during the revolutionary period as well. Um, he gave up a lot. He sacrificed a lot um, during the presidency. And afterwards, if you see, you know, sort of, by the t- when he takes office, there's not photography yet. By the time he leaves office, we've got the first photographs. And so the photographs you see of Andrew Jackson, he is an old, tired, worn-down person. And that was the presidency because everyone commented before on his physical strength, on his uh, endurance, on his ability to uh, outlast everyone else, right? He was tall and thin and angular, had this gray shock of hair that stood up on end, had gray eyes that everyone said looked right through you, Right. Uh, I was tell my students, have you ever known someone that when they walk in the room, people instinctively turn to look at that person? He had that kind of personality. And, and maybe Donald Trump does as well. I, I, I don't know. Um, but that's dissipated after the presidency. So, you know, you've seen all those before and after pictures of people who are in the White House for four or eight years. It just takes its toll on you. And so physically it did for him. It never changed his political view or his political outlook. outlook. He always thought he was fighting for that common person he always thought that he was trying to save the union, right? I tell my students the number one goal of his administration was to remove any obstacle that stood in the way of the American people, right? So the National Bank is an obstacle. The Indians in the West are an obstacle. The debt is an obstacle. Uh, nullification is a great obstacle, the threat of nullification in a divided country. So I'm going to get rid of all those obstacles before the American people. Well, those are bruising battles that he has to fight, particularly the one against the bank, you know, that um, that almost does him in right then. So. so the issue with John Quincy Adams, I'd like to go back to that real quickly and draw on a comparison to uh, current uh, current events in, uh, in politics. Uh, first and foremost, uh, Bernie Sanders, who is the uh, populist candidate or demagogue, if you will, of the of Democratic Party right now, uh, who's who's not going to stop fighting. It seems apparent that he is not going to give up. Not only is he not going to give up, he didn't he doesn't have a past of giving up. When he goes to the convention, he's planning on getting as many delegates as he possibly can. And it seems by all appearances and from what we know that the Democratic uh, establishment sees his candidacy as dangerous to the Democratic Party. 
um, in a sense that it's going to pull them too far to the left to where, you know, or to uh, something else. And I've heard Joe Biden say this multiple times. He just now got done uh, with a with quite the finish with the Super Tuesday um, events. And so he's starting to look more and more, especially with Elizabeth Warren kind of out on the on the margin now, uh, although her endorsement is kind of questionable uh, who she's going to endorse. Um, it seems like Biden keeps saying we need a Democrat over and over and over again. And so is there any comparison to be made between what happened with John Quincy Adams and the Democratic Party at that particular time prior to his presidency and what's happening right now in the Democratic Party uh, in 2020? Yeah, uh, absolutely. I think there are there are some very, um, very obvious comparisons between them. So again, uh, Jackson announced in 1822 in Nashville that he was going to run for the presidency, and he was not in the inner circle of the Democratic Party. At that time, the Democratic Party had a um, nominating system. They basically had a small group of men. Most of them were in um, New York, and the others were in Virginia. Uh, And it's those men in Virginia that I um, based my dissertation on. And they were in control of who was going to be the next um, candidate for the the Democratic Party. So it was all laid out. And their their man was William Crawford. Um, and Crawford just never uh, had the kind of connection or the appeal that could draw any sort of um, uh, wide base. He did win Virginia because the, the party controlled Virginia so tightly in 1824 that Crawford actually won uh, Virginia in 1824. But Jackson couldn't be controlled. Jackson couldn't be brought into line. Um, John Quincy Adams, on the other hand, Henry Clay, the other candidates were well-heeled, well-connected. They were insiders, right? They had worked their way up through the political um, parties that way, and they were toting the party line, right, the proverbial uh, party line. Andrew Jackson really didn't care. Uh, you know, he said what he said, and, and um, he believed that he was the most popular candidate, and because this was, in essence, a popularity candid- uh, competition, he should win. Jackson was the only candidate in 24 who had votes all over the United States, right? All the other candidates were regional candidates, Clay in the West, um, Adams in uh, New England, um, um, Crawford won, I think, uh, Virginia and maybe North Carolina or something like that, or Maryland, something like that. So, But Jackson had votes everywhere, Pennsylvania, South Carolina, out in the West, in Kentucky, up in the North. Um, he did well everywhere. So... We talk about Sanders. Sanders is the same kind of person. Um, he is a he is an outsider to the Democratic Party. I believe he's still is he still listed as an independent? Is that his political affiliation? Uh, or for a long time he was an independent, and that's probably the best word you know to describe him. He also believes he has popular momentum on his side. He also believes he speaks for a large group of people who have been tamped down or whose voice has been shut out by the uh, establishment, right? And so just like in 1824, you have a National Democratic Party, the DNC, that is operating behind the scenes to make sure that the person who has the best chance not only of winning, but the best chance of carrying out party initiatives and party goals and party platform uh, is put into place. They want someone that they can go to and say, look, you're our guy or you're our person, but you got to tote this line and you got to do this. And this is what the Democrats stand for. And that's not going to be Bernie Sanders, right? He's already made clear he's not going to let them decide who his vice presidential candidate is going to be. He's not going to let them decide who the cabinet members are going to be. Um, so he, like Jackson, he is that loose cannon that's out there. And he is really appealing to a group of people who are so tired 
of this scripted, formulaic, uh, well, it's already been figured out who it is. This is a sham. Why are we even going and voting? They know who the candidates are going to be because they've already groomed them and decided in, you know, smoke-filled rooms, you know, and all that kind of thing, who, who it's going to be. So Sanders and Jackson are exactly alike in that, in that regard. They are bucking up against an established political system that is scared of losing control over their party because of these sort of outliers. So without even doing it on purpose, because they would say they are the complete opposite people, Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders are kind of in the same boat because they're both bucking the system in the party. They're not what we expect, right. that stereotypical political person. And they're coming in. So even though they are completely opposite, they're not really because they kind of have the same... From that perspective, the way yeah. that they're approaching their, their presidency is, is, is very similar, at least in 24. Now, the difference between 24 and 28 is after he's beat in 24, after the insiders do a job on him, right? Jackson wins the most popular votes. He wins the most electoral votes. But because of our electoral college, he doesn't win a majority of electoral votes. So it gets thrown to the House of Representatives where the Democratic Party is firmly entrenched. And they make sure that this crazy guy, Jackson, is not going to be the president, right? So they, they pick a safe bet. They pick John Quincy Adams, who, by the way, is a good president, decent man, very decent man, probably the most brilliant president we've ever had in terms of his um, education and so on and so forth. But he's doomed from the beginning because as soon as that happens, I mean, Jackson has loaded up his stuff from Nashville and is working on his inaugural address when he finds out he's not going to be the president. So he's sure that it's been stolen from him. Right, that this political party has stolen the election from him. He gets together with your, your friend, Martin Van Buren, and he says, come on, let's recreate the Democratic Party around me. Right, And so um, Van Buren spends the next four years putting together a coalition of New Yorkers and Virginians that is the new Democratic Party. It's the Democratic Party of Andrew Jackson. And, and is that how he gets the name Little Magi- the Little the Magician? Li- well, the Little where, Magician. Where does that come from? Well, um, Martin Van Buren, fascinating, uh, really fascinating person. I would argue the most influential and the quote-unquote best politician we had in the 19th century. Um, John Randolph said of him that he rose to his objective with muffled oars. Um, he understood the political process in a way that few people did, right? Again, came out of obscurity. Um, his parents were working class and pulled himself up to be the boss of a political system in New York, the most fractious state in the union at this time, and becomes this person who understands how American politics works in an intuitive way. And so he was constantly pulling off these deals behind the scenes. He was the consummate behind the scenes politician, right? Really had no business being president. That wasn't uh, where his uh, strength was. He is, and you'll pardon the expression, but he's the LBJ of the 19th century, or LBJ is the Martin Luther or Martin Van Buren of the uh, 20th century, because the men operate in very similar, uh, very similar ways. But he, Van Buren, puts the Democratic Party together, but he knows he can't lead it. It has to be the strong, dynamic personality of Andrew Jackson. Interesting. So, yeah. So, real quickly, can you comment a little bit about what it was like to go to the College of William and Mary, where? President Thomas Jefferson, the, I mean, the signer of the Declaration of Independence, the, the, uh, in yeah. many ways, the author of the Declaration of Independence, the man, the legend, the myth. I mean, what was that like? Well, uh, I consider myself tremendously fortunate to, to do that. First of all, it's a first-rate school. It's a public university. Most people don't under, realize it's a public university, highly selective. It's about the same size as WT. They have about um, 9,000, 10,000 students world-class um, education. Um, I took uh, classes from people who, you know, are big names in the field that I was interested in. 
But the campus itself is gorgeous. It sits in the colonial capital of Virginia Williamsburg, which has been restored. You know, uh, colonial Williamsburg is a mile long of uh, um, uh, houses and shops and, and, and that have been cr- meticulously created to represent the 1770s. So for someone who's interested in early American history, I could walk out from my classroom and in five minutes be strolling along the Duke of Gloucester Street with people in costume and, and you know, carpenters and, and uh, plants and animals that haven't been around for hundreds of years that they have, you know, recreated. So it was like a living history, you know, living history museum. You can feel Mr. Jefferson's presence there um, all the time. Um, he, they're inordinately proud of him, and they should be. There's uh, statues to him and buildings named after him uh, as a student. Um, there's stories about him, and, you know, you go down to the Bruton Parish Church on the Duke of Gloucester Street, and supposedly he carved his initials into the uh, pews because he was bored with the sermon one day or something like that. Um, but the most exciting thing for me was uh, when I finished my dissertation to defend it, um, all, the dis- all the dissertations at that time were defended in uh, the Blue Room in the Sir Christopher Wren Building, which is the oldest continuous-use classroom in the United States. It may or may not have been designed by Christopher Wren, but that building's been around uh, since the 1680s or 1690s. So I'm sitting in a room that has no electricity, that's powered by candle, Right. And this was a room that Thomas Jefferson would have taken classes in. And the floors creak and, you know, there's heavy felt drapes uh, and everything. And I'm defending my dissertation in there. Um, and then just to add just a little to it, William Mary has tremendous traditions. Um, I wish that every university had the kind of deep traditions that they have. You think about Texas A&M and their traditions they have. William Mary, the same thing. Last day of the semester, seniors get to ring the bell in the Wren Chapel. It's the only time they get to touch it. But they get to line up, and they get to ring the bell to signify their graduation. Well, guess what day I'm doing my dissertation defense? The last day of the semester, oh, right? Okay. I'm waiting till the <laughs> – so five feet away from me, and I'm in this room with these imposing people who are going over my – there's this line of, you know, giddy uh, seniors. Ding, 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 ding. It was great, great, because, uh, you know, we had to stop every once in a while, listen to the bells, and, you know. But anyway, those kinds of things really stuck with me, and it's, it, it was um, a real um, blessing for me. I, I feel very strongly about my association with um, William & Mary. Made a lot of good friends there, met my wife there, um, and still think it's one of the premier institutions in the United States, matched and maybe outmatched now by the University of Virginia, which Thomas Jefferson created, right? And so he went to William & Mary, and then he saw some deficiencies there, and created um, University of Virginia late in his life, uh, which is really Mr. Jefferson's university. So there's a good healthy rivalry between those two, but if you'll look at your rankings, you'll see that UVA and William & Mary are usually ranked in the top 20 nationwide for public universities, and that's the state of Virginia, right? That's a pretty small state to have two world-class public universities like that. Thank you for asking. Of course, and it's it's really interesting. You you, you referred to him as uh, Mr. Jefferson. Is Is that a tradition? Well, certainly in Virginia, at UVA, certainly at the University of Virginia, that's almost exclusively how he's called. Um, we would, uh, we felt we could be more familiar with him at William Mary, so we often called him TJ, which he was never called by at that time, uh, or just Jefferson, right? And like I said, you can almost feel his presence on that campus, uh, you know, to this day. William and Mary calls itself the alma mater of a nation because there were two presidents who were students there, um, John Marshall. Uh, the first law professor in the United States, the first law school in the United States, um, lots of senators and governors. And even if you look on the national stage today, many of the people from that part of the state have their degrees from uh, William & Mary. So. so interesting. Thank you so much for being on our podcast this morning. 
what a what a privilege and honor. We've uh, all learned a lot, I think. Well, Absolutely. Mm-hmm. That's so neat. I'm so excited that we had this conversation. I'd like thank to you. invite you on again in the future uh, for a uh, for an episode, uh, kind of talking and discussing some of the uh, origins of our of our country, uh, specifically centered around Bernard Balin's book, The Ideological Origins of the American Revolution. I think that would be of great interest to not only our listeners, but uh, but the but specifically to our region, uh, quite patriotic and. Uh, people people tend to, to relate in many ways to the frontier, if you will, mm-hmm. of, uh, of, of that time period. So thank you again for being on. I appreciate it. Glad to come back. Thank you. Okay, listeners, we have 15 more episodes to do this spring lined, lined up covering everything from the impeachment trial to mental health to national and international security. We're going to be with two of our history professors to visit about Ernest Hemingway and F. Scott Fitzgerald. Uh, that is, we've got to get Dr. Decker, uh, we've got to get her committed uh, to that and get a get that on the calendar. We also have guests lined up from across the country from the fields of political psychology. So thank you again to our guests this morning and thank you for listening. We will be back soon with another episode.